Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Well, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Today's guest will sound and now look very familiar to those from just prior to, I believe, the pandemic, uh, Mr. Tom Ziegler. We were honored to have him on the first time, and he's back and better than ever. And uh, many of you guys know the Ziegler name, the Ziegler family, from Zig to Tom and all the, the great impact they've had on just not just leaders, but on human beings around the world and the legacy that the Ziegler name carries. And Tom has released a new book that I'm really excited for y'all out there to listen, been listening today to, <clears throat> to dive into a little deeper. 10 Leadership Virtues for Disruptive Times. I'm not sure why we would want a book like that right now. There's nothing going on at all that's disruptive. Feels like things are pretty steady. <laughs> it's a perfect time for that. So Tom, uh, thank you for being back on again. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. Well, Jeff, it's an honor to be back. Uh, it's always a, uh, a blessing to be invited back for a second appearance. Uh, the first appearance is usually trust and faith and somebody else's recommendation. And the second time, it's because maybe you connected. So I'm just, I'm just glad to be back. Well, we're certainly honored to have you back. And I read the book, and <clears throat> I will tell you that you know, it's you and I are in this space where we, you know, we write books and we go out and we speak a lot and we get to talk to a lot of people, and and sometimes it can feel like every topic's been covered at nauseum, right? It feels like every topic's been written about thirty-seven times in five hundred seventy-five ways, and coming up coming up with an, an approach that's unique and relevant for the time is, is sometimes can be challenging. And I feel like, boy, you just really knocked it out of the park. Um, in fact, I was we were talking in the pre-show. You're for the forward here by your nice friend, Mr. Ken Blanchard. So you, your book has been endorsed by everyone from Ken to Seth Godin to Michael Hyatt to just you know people who I really, really trust and respect. And so I know you hit the mark with the book when I just read the forward and the endorsements. And then when I read the book, I thought, yep, he did it. He figured out how to take this concept and really make it stick for where we are today. So I guess the first question for you, Tom, is what, what led you to feel like you needed to write this book right now? Yeah, so the kind of the backstory on it is I had with our publisher, uh, I had a two-book deal, and I was supposed to have that second book done in 2020. And the pan, you know, and, and so I was, I mean, I had to write it in 2019, but they pushed it off a little bit for whatever reason. I started writing it at the end of 2019 and then everything changed and the whole book changed. Uh, and I started studying in April of, of 2020, what is going on in business? What, what are the things that are changing? I mean, we saw it instantly uh, you know, one of the first articles I read was in the initial lockdown, there were 60 million fewer commuter hours a day. I mean, <laughs> that's that's crazy. And then uh, 33% of that time was put back into productivity, which, golly, you know, everybody said working from home would never work. But those who had positions and jobs that could work from home, they thrived in it, right? They 
And, and then, of course, there's all the adjustments. Uh, I remember, you know, telemedicine's been out for seven or eight years, but nobody trusted it, you know, because hospitals didn't like it, doctors didn't like it, patients didn't think it'd work. And then that was the only way we could see a doctor for a while unless we were really sick. And I remember uh, I got a sinus infection. I, I go online and schedule it. And, you know, an hour later, I'm in front of a doctor. And 20 minutes later, I'm on the way to the pharmacy. And I'm thinking, why did I ever go in a doctor's office for, right. Right, for a minor thing? So there's been all these dominoes, all these changes, good and bad. And for me, it's not really good and bad. It's uh, all these changes that are different that allow us to maximize what's here right now. And people's, um, the very foundation of the way people make decisions today is different. The number one issue uh, in business today is mental health of their people. It's like the biggest challenge. 28%, this is a new study that just came out, uh, job sage, 28% of people quit their jobs in the last two years because of mental health. 55% said in that, in that who quit said that, um, that the number one reason 55%, I'm, I'm pulling that stat right out of my brain right now <laughs> as, I, as I'm trying to remember it, was stress, 38%. Depression, 37% lack of motivation. And so if you're a leader right now and you've got four people on your team, have you lost a person in the last two years? And if you did, it's probably because of one of those three areas, stress or burnout, depression or lack of motivation. And so how do we handle that? as leaders, as business owners, as, as large companies, how do we adjust to that? And that's what the book really talks about, is how do we uh, thrive in this disruption? And instead of being paralyzed and watching everything drift away and losing control, how do we actually make disruption our strategic advantage? And so that's what the book teaches. Yeah, I love that. And I think um, it's been thrown around a lot that they're calling the last two years the great reset or the, not the great reset, the great resignation. And, and I've kind of flipped it. I, I think it, we should call it the great reflection because um, I really think what's happened is, is we've, you know, people are really, they've had time that they didn't have before to sit and think about what matters. That's awesome. I actually had a client in, uh, that I went and spoke for in February and uh, we were working on it last year and the great resignation had just come out and they were bringing all their people in for the first time in two years. And, and they said, Hey, what do you, you know, what do you think the theme of our conference should be? Well, I termed something uh, in the fall last year called the great reimagination. Yeah. Right. So I love that. The great reflection T today to me, it's a time to reimagine the way we can do things. Just like the telehealth example, uh, two new things just happened in the last month. A, a virtual forklift company got funded when it went public. So think about this. Uh, you know, you go into a warehouse and there's forklift drivers 
Now the technology's there where the person can sit at home with joysticks and through their computer screen, drive a forklift a thousand miles away. Isn't that crazy? That's, that's crazy. And so what is that? That's a, that's a traditional blue collar job going virtual, which more and more that's going to happen. The other one is uh, it's either Byte Ninja or Ninja Byte. Uh, it's a new company. And so, you know, they have such tight labor supply in the food industry that uh, when you pull up to fast food now and you order through the speaker, the person taking your order might be a thousand miles away. Wow. Isn't that crazy? And so when you look at uh, highly qualified people who live, you know, a little outside of city centers away from these restaurants, maybe they want a higher quality of life. They want to spend time with their grandkids, whatever their situation is. And so they would love to work 20 or 30 hours a week with a great attitude but if they have to drive in and go through all that, it doesn't, it doesn't, and stand up on their feet all day, it just doesn't work for them. Now they can do it this way. So it's creating a lot of opportunity we didn't see. So that's the way we're all reimagining it. Yeah, you know, what's funny is I was thinking through this that, you know, the old phrase that necessity is the mother of invention, that's a very reactive all right, it's a very reactive mindset. And now there's a good that comes out of that, right? We've, we've, as you've seen with the pandemic, to your point, you're giving us lots of examples. But what I love about your point of view here is, you know, the imagination is a proactive mother of invention. And so it really comes down to, do you want to react because something has been disrupted? Or can you switch your mindset to kind of get into a place of imagination that reimagining becomes a proactive then, it, then, then the, that that changes the innovation because now it's forward-looking versus reactive. They both work, right? But it's a different mindset. Yeah. In fact, I'm writing an article right now uh, off of that job sage uh, survey. So the top three reasons were depression. Uh, number one was stress or burnout. Number two was depression. Number three was lack of motivation. And those are all problems. But what I call a coach leader, which is what we talk about in the book, coach leaders aren't problem focused, they're solution focused. So what is the answer to stress or burnout? It's quality of life. If I'm going to lead my team, my organization, I'm going to make sure that I'm supporting their overall quality of life. Number two is depression. Well, Rabbi Lappin says that, Daniel Lappin says that the opposite of depression is not happiness. The opposite of depression is purpose. So if I'm a coach leader, instead of focusing on the problem, I'm going to focus on the solution, which is, hey, the purpose of our business, the mission, the vision of what we do, the why behind the why, the, the problem that we solve is this. And then I go and find out what my each team member, what their why is, what they want to accomplish. And I get those two aligned. And now everybody on the team's working for a purpose. And when you're on the road to purpose, happiness is the byproduct. So you defeat depression by going after purpose. And then the third one there, the problem they identified was lack of motivation. Well, as a coach leader, I'm going to focus on the solution. People are, when their goals and growth focused, motivation is internal. And so if I'm constantly trying to figure out Hey, what goals can I help my team meet uh, professionally and personally? And what growth can they experience that allows them to be more capable tomorrow than they are today? The motivation comes automatically with that. And so you're right on, Jeff. It's, it's 
why do we focus on the problems when really all this disruption for the right kind of leader is actually a strategic advantage? Yeah, I love that. I think um, Dr. Dan on our team, Dr. Dan Doherty, and he and I kind of co-created neuro, the neuro coaching model. Uh, what we found was very similarly, now this is going to be really interesting as I've read through your book and how this all kind of really overlays into how leaders should think today is there's, you know, there's a shared vision idea. Most leaders just think about the company vision. And up until the pandemic, they hadn't really had to consider what the employee's vision was. The good ones did, but by and large, it was, here's what, here's our company. Here's what we do. Here's the vision. Now go do your job and help us get to the, get to the end, you know, get to the, to the goal line. But what we've learned is that it takes really, you got to understand the company vision, but the leader has to have a vision. And then they have to understand the employee vision. If they don't know those three things, they can't do the exact things you're talking about, which is paint the picture for the opposite of the problem. And that's what I love about your virtues is they really bake into the mindset of a leader. And, and I, I don't know if you have an opinion on this or not, but you know, we, we kind of grew up with a lot of that servant leadership mindset. And I do think there's a lot of value there, uh, but it almost kind of got washed out a little bit. Everyone has a servant leader mindset. Well, what does that really mean? And what, how does it practically show up every day in, in the workplace? And now with this remote and all the challenges that we found, your virtues to me really, in my mind, embody what that actually means when you're living it out every day. Would you, would you agree with that? A hundred percent. And just to kind of bundle the book into three sections, there's three sections in the book. And the meat of the book is the 10 virtues. That's the majority of the pages the first part of the book is about the coach leader mindset. How do we approach it? What do we think? The second part is this. Everybody says, love your people. Everybody says, be empathetic to your people, but nobody tells you how, right? right? And so the 10 virtues are actually the how of showing love and being empathetic. And so the virtues really go into uh, demonstrating to people, hey, this is how I am kind. This is how I show respect. This is how my humility is on display. And we go through those different virtues with a how, a tactical. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an introvert. I live my life inside my head. Uh, I used to go to work and I'd have a fantastic day because I would have these imaginary conversations with each of my team members and we would end up on the same page. <laughs> and like I said, they were imaginary conversations. They had no clue what I was thinking. And since I wasn't doing anything, they couldn't even judge my behavior. And so the 10 virtues takes that imaginary thinking of what we should do into an application so our people can see it. Because really all we can do is judge people's behavior the last section is what I call the intentional coach leader coaching conversation. And this is really the silver bullet. It's around uh, each team member. We recommend every week you have a coaching conversation with each person on your team. And it's around goals and growth, professional goals and growth. And it can blend over to the personal. That's fine. And you focus on three areas, their attitude, their effort, and their skill. And so it's not theory, right? This is not a book of, wow, we should think this way. This is a book of, wow, we should do this way with this motive. And when you do the right things with the right motive, then that touches the heart of people. 
I think Gallup said that, um, talking about the great resignation, that if you uh, if they have a great relationship with leadership, it takes at least 20% to lure somebody away. If you don't have a good relationship with your leadership as a team member, you'll leave for anything. Right. You might even leave for less, right? <laughs> right. And that's just, that's the tragedy right now is we look at all these people who are in the great resignation they're leaving. And the tragedy is, is they're running from something instead of to something. And one of the things that I tell our coach leaders is this, the number one business challenge opportunity today is simply this, attracting, developing, and keeping top performers. Top performers have more leverage than they've ever had. They can work from anywhere in the world for anyone in the world because the, the, the world is moving to what I call an outcome-focused environment instead of an output-focused environment. And old-school leaders, uh, top-down, do it because I said so, command and control, what they are doing is they're trying to measure outputs. They want you to come back in the office. They want to see how many keystrokes you make. They want to, they want to know how many hours you spend on it. Coach leaders, they share the vision and they say, here's the outcome we want. We want, we want a client that's not only satisfied, but they're referring people all the time. And if that's the outcome, then However you do that within the framework of our mission is good. Let's, let's go get some outcomes. And so it's a different approach to it. Yeah, and interesting. And we, we might have said this on the <clears throat> last episode you were on is, in all my career, the biggest term I always heard throughout all of my management levels and we'd hear different management tracks and trainings and programs was people don't like to be micromanaged. Like that's a big, that's a big phrase out there. And, and, and I, I don't know, it was probably four or five years ago, I had this thought. So you know what I've never heard? I've never heard a single employee in the history of work, the workforce say, I don't want to be micro-coached. And that mindset that you're talking about from a leader, because it's hard to coach somebody with a mindset that you're trying to manage them top-down, because your point is you're managing to, their, to the number transactionally. You're not coaching to the outcome. It's a mindset thing, right? Why, why do you suppose... The vast majority, and, I, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use hyperbole here, probably, maybe not, but the vast majority of managers that we've seen and, and across the clients we work with, they, they don't have that mindset. They have, they have more of a manager versus a coach mindset, more of a, of a production versus an outcomes mindset. Why, why do you suppose that is? Yeah, I think in general, uh, most people lead how they were led. Mm. I mean, that's... Bottom line, we, we do what we were taught. We, we do what was done to us. And so they just don't have the skill set. They, they might have the desire, but they don't know how. It's, it's like in sales, we say telling is not selling. In a sales conversation with a, with a prospect, a great salesperson only speaks 20% of the time. And it's because they're asking questions to uncover needs and they're letting that prospect share with them what it is that's going on, where their pain is, what they were hoping to get. And then out of that conversation, the sales professional 
can then make recommendations that fit what that person's actually looking for rather than vomiting out a catalog. Right. Right. Well, that's also the difference between uh, a traditional manager and a coach leader. A manager is going to go in there and say, do this. Here's the policy. Here's the procedure. I need it by five. Here's how you do it. Do it this way. And there's no questions in there. A coach leader is going to walk into that same environment and say, hey, here's the outcome we want. What have you done like this in the past? What do you think we should do? If you were going to deliver this in, in a way that provided an amazing experience, what would you change about the way we're doing it now? And, and so those are all coaching questions. And so when we talk about a, a micro coach um, kind of concept, I, I, I say this, and, and we don't want to give somebody a performance plan and say, do these things well, and you will get a promotion. Because if we give the same plan to everybody, it's not a fit for anybody, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so what we do and in, in the way we teach it in our, we have a coach uh, leader program where we actually work with leaders on how to coach their people. We say something very simply like this. When you're working with somebody on your team, let's just say they're in sales. You ask them a simple question. Hey, when you, when you go in to this prospect who you've never met before, how are they feeling and thinking before you walk in? And so that person is going to answer that. They're feeling this way. Well, great. Okay, so when you leave and you've had a fantastic meeting with them, how do you want them to be thinking and feeling when the meeting's over? And then they'll say, oh, you know, I want a referral. I hope I got the sale. They'll, you know, whatever the sales environment is, whether it was an introduction or a one-call close or whatever type of business they're in, they're going to tell you where they want them to be. And now the coach leader simply says, that's fantastic. What attitudes can you demonstrate to them that move them from A to B? And so that individual now has to think, golly, if if they're kind of like, you know, standoffish and how much is this going to cost? And oh, no, another sales pitch. If that's their attitude, if that's the way they're thinking and feeling when I'm walking in, and what I want them to be is a referral partner who feels like we saved the day when I walk out, what attitude do I need to show up with? Well, the great um, aspect of that question is, if you're dealing with an introvert, they're going to give you answers like this. Oh, well, I guess I should smile. (laughs) I, I guess I should have some energy. I guess I should come across as this is a great high point in my day right? If you've got an extrovert who's bubbly all the time, maybe a little bit of squirrel focus, you know, can get distracted. They'll tell you things like this. Oh, I should come in prepared. I should have a list, you know, and a notepad to take down what they say so they know I'm paying attention. And so what does all that mean? It simply means that the individual is creating their own personal goals and growth plan. And then at the end of the conversation, the coach leader simply says, wow, that's fantastic. Is it okay if I'll hold you accountable to your goals? <laughs> well, 
<laughs> That's an awesome tie down question because who's going to say, no, you can't hold me accountable to my goals. They're my goals. Right. 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 <clears throat> so you mean there's an actual science behind getting people to choose their own change versus telling them what to do different. I didn't have any idea. Um, I, I love your, your concept in general from a leadership standpoint of the difference of managing versus coaching. And you, you said something that really triggered in me, you know, the old adage, do unto others as you would have done unto you. When you're telling me though, that most of us tend to do unto others as we've had done to us. And as managers and probably human beings, that's monkey see monkey do right, and to break those break those habits um, is difficult because they're literally neural pathways right that are hardwired in our brain for our behaviors that are given. So, and what you've done with the book that I love is, by the way, one of the things that I really really appreciate because we espouse these same values is when I read this book, and yes, this is a book that has you know leadership on the cover. This is a book that's basically built for any human being who has to interact with any other human beings. And I, I, when, I, when I read your virtues, the 10 virtues, and we'll just rattle them off here, kindness. I want you to listen, as you're listening, think about these out there, if you're driving around, or if you're listening to this at the house there on the treadmill, kindness, selflessness, respect, humility, self-control, positivity, looking for the best being the light, never giving up, and standing firm. Now, for those who just heard those 10, we're going to talk a little bit about them. We can't give them all away. We could have done a four-hour book reading with Tom, but we can't give all the details away because I want you to read the book. But for those who just heard me say those 10 virtues, how many of you right now are thinking, boy, that would make me a much better husband? If I did those 10 virtues, that would make me a much better mother and neighbor and friend. Uh, that's what I love about your stuff, Tom, is yes, we're going to put it through the lens of leadership because it's so critically important right now, but I, want, I don't want people to miss if they're out there thinking, well, I'm not in a leadership position right now. If you're in a family, you are, <laughs> right? And these all will help you be a better communicator with those who you care about. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny when you said that because uh, it reminds me on on a story I love and the story is called how to catch unicorns. And I was uh, coaching somebody and this guy was a young multimillionaire. He's like early thirties, multimillionaire in real estate. And he looks up and he says, Tom, I think I want to get married. And I go, well, that's good. And he says, I think I should start dating first. <laughs> and we laughed. I said, yeah, usually dating comes before marriage, you know, and I dug into it and he hadn't really dated for like 15 years, like since he was a teenager, just been totally career focused. And I said to him, so who do you want to marry? I'm sure you got a list, right? We all got the list. Every human being alive has the list. And so he starts listing out the qualities, uh, the characteristics, the virtues of this woman that he wanted to make his wife. And of course, they were smart and had a great sense of humor and they were compassionate and had a lot of empathy and athletic and liked adventure, you know, and the list went on and on and on. And then after a couple of minutes, he paused and he said, Tom, I just described a unicorn, didn't I? <laughs> like they don't exist. And I said, well, I don't know. And then he said, how do you catch a unicorn? 
And I said, well, actually, it's not as hard as you think, but it's hard. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you've got the list of what you want. Now what you need to do is write down the list of qualities that they would be attracted to that would attract a unicorn and you develop those qualities in yourself. Right. It's, it's pretty simple. That's good stuff right there. So So if you're out in the dating world and you're thinking, how do I catch the unicorn? Write the list of what you want and then ask yourself, what qualities would that person be attracted to? And that's what you develop in yourself. If you're trying to grow a business or a team, just write down the qualities of the people you want on your team. You know, what are their attributes? What are their virtues? How do they treat each other? How do they do life? Write down and then ask yourself, who would that person be attracted to? Who would they want to go and commit to as far as a career? And then you develop those things inside of yourself. That's really good. Well, let's dive into some of this here too, because I think with some practical stuff, there's some things that really kind of struck me as I went through the book. So the first virtue, kindness. So I'm going to give you the floor for a minute and I want to, I want you to, I want you to preach the gospel of kindness to us from a leadership perspective. And then I want you to tell me um, your thoughts on I, what I was struck by was the, the blind spot piece. And I think kindness of all the virtues that you've listed right now has never been in, in more demand and yet has also never been more elusive. Um, so what, do you, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? What can, what, what, what can you glean from the cliff notes of what's in the book on kindness? Yeah, well, I had a great uh, interview with an, uh, a world-renowned expert on kindness, Shanti Fieldhorn, and she's an amazing lady, uh, done all kinds of studies. And the thing that stands out about kindness is that if you ask people, are you kind, almost everybody, well into the 90 percentile, will say, yeah, I'm kind. But when you observe their behavior, they're not kind. And that's the key difference. And so the thinking, we, we judge ourselves by our own, you know, we, we judge ourselves differently than we judge other people. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We, we know our intent and motive. At least we tell ourselves we do. And so we can, we can say and do things that aren't kind, that put a burden on someone else. And so that's not the way kindness works. The way kindness works is what's the behavior, the action that you're doing that uh, creates a reciprocity, a kindness back from that other person. And you're not doing it to get reciprocity. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do. It's just always good to be kind. So in a divisive culture uh, right now, where everything is us or them, right? If two sides are disagreeing, how would the world change if they just both sat down and they were just kind to each other? And there's a story that I like. Uh, one of our uh, people shared it with me. And this this new company had, um, they onboarded, it was their first day of training. They'd hired some new people to come in. And in this training, and you know, all the new people came in, there was like 15 or 20 people going through the class together. And the supervisor managers were in the room together. And then there was a, uh, another mid-level manager. Then there was the highest, person in the room to be a part of this kickoff. And the dress code was 
everybody had to wear uh, a sports coat and a tie and slacks, right? I mean, that was the dress code. Well, one of the new hires shows up without a tie and a sports coat. And everybody's looking around at what's going to happen, right? Because are they going to get hit with policy and procedure or something else? And before the person in charge of the meeting could go and talk to that individual who didn't have on the sports coat and tie, the higher up, the highest ranking manager in there went over, took his tie off, put the sports coat, gave it to the person and said, here, this will help you out today. And he did it in a way that just respected and showed kindness to that individual. And the person telling me the story said that all these years later, more than 10 years later, the people who were in that class still talk about that moment. Mm. That's such a good example of, of kindness in action. And you made a comment there a little, a little bit ago that I th- really struck me as well. All of these virtues, I think about how, how are they measured? And they're measured in the, I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, they're measured in the, um, the actionable behavioral response of those who are impacted by the behavior. And so if, if I am, how do I know that I'm kind? I can feel like I'm kind, but if you don't feel like I'm kind to you and you don't react in kind, pun intended, then was I really kind? I might have felt like I was kind, but if it's about human interaction and how you're making the other person feel in that moment and you didn't reciprocate kindness just because you didn't feel I was being kind, then was I really being kind? That's the old, if the virtue tree falls in the woods, <laughs> nobody's there to, like, is that, is that right or am I off track a little bit there with the, it's really about how the other person reacts to that, whether it's true or not. Yes, exactly. Uh, Shanti Fieldhorn, she she has a thing called the kindness challenge. And in the kindness challenge, you let's just say there's a relationship you have at home or at work and you've got a lot of friction and you've, you've said words that you regret or done things that you regret. You want to repair it, right? You want to fix it. And so what you do is you pick that person for the kindness challenge, but you don't tell them right? They have no idea that you're doing this. And it's a 30-day challenge. And all you got to do is three things. You don't say anything negative to them or about them. So nothing negative to them or about them for 30 days. And then every day for 30 days, you say something positive to them and something positive about them to someone else. And the third piece is you do a little thing, a little nice thing for them that shows them that you're thinking about them. And it could be as simple as you're at the office when we used to all be in the office, but you're, <laughs> you're walking to the kitchen to get a bottle of water and you simply say, hey, I'm going to get a bottle of water from the kitchen. Can I bring you back something on my way? Right. That's how simple this, the act of kindness needs to be. I think this, I, I think she said 87% of people uh, in the surveys who do this have an improvement in that relationship as, as part of that. And so it's not only not being unkind, it's intentionally being kind. 
And that's where people see it in the behavior, right? It's not just, I'm going to stop being harsh or critical. It's, I'm going to turn around and be supportive. And that's a hard thing for people to do. Uh, but when you do that, she said, I think her words were, it doesn't break the walls down. It melts them. Mm. And so when you need to have a real conversation about an issue that's probably the driver behind this friction, the receptivity of it and the willingness to hear is through the roof. And they don't even realize it. It's because it's very difficult to maintain over a long period of time, a harsh attitude to somebody who's just kind. But Tom, on it, what you're describing, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work. And, and I got to think about other people to do that. That's just, I mean, what, I mean, come on, that's not practical. <laughs> I know. Uh, it, well, if you, well, if you do think about it, and I, I say that in somewhat jet with Jess, but in the world we live in today, and I catch myself with this, you know, unenviable task list and so many things going on and so much stress in your life going on. And, 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 and if all you're doing is processing that every day and on that same treadmill every day, you really don't have a lot of room for others. And though in your mind, your intent is, well, I'm providing for my family or I'm, I'm accomplishing this for my team or I'm doing this for my company. What you're really doing is you're filling your headspace full of a bunch of stuff, task-oriented, you know, transactional behaviors, which don't allow you to have the kind of space in your life to even think about others in order to be kind to them. Is that right? 100%. And, you know, you know uh, one of the qualities that we get into is humility. And... I, I, and in, in humility, I say that, you know, the, of course, the opposite of humility is arrogance. And when you look at, and I ask people, um, you know, what's the difference between short-term confidence and long-term confidence? Short-term confidence is based on my results from yesterday. You know, hey, I hit the number, I made the shot, uh, we... We landed the account, whatever that is. And so if I put my value and my stake in all of my results that were yesterday, then that means I got to do it again today. I got to produce again today. And then when disruption comes, and by the way, the intensity and frequency of disruption is only going up. I mean, it's just going to get worse. And that means that markets are going to change. Business, The way business is done is going to change. The way people live their lives is going to change. So if my, my confidence is built on what I did yesterday on results, I'm going to get rocked. And so somebody who's a high achiever who has got great results and it's all based on what they did, that leads to arrogance. Arrogance means it's about me. It means it's about what I can do. And I don't really have to worry about you. Now, long-term confidence is completely different. Long-term confidence is about growth and learning. It's not, it's not about what I know. It's about who I know, right? Because uh, as somebody who's got humility says, it's okay if I don't know the answer, because I've got a team of people who do, who know how to learn and know how to grow. And so that's where when, when you kind of, when you start pairing things, people who are kind with humility they don't have the pressure to be perfect. 
And because they don't have the pressure to be perfect, it's not all about them. In fact, humble leaders get excited when they don't know the answer because now they've got an opportunity to grow and learn. They've got an opportunity to help somebody else on the team shine, which is what leadership's all about. If they're a if they're an arrogant leader, a self-centered leader instead of a selfless leader, then they get really under pressure and they'll act out and they'll they'll react inappropriately to what's going on because if they don't know the answer, obviously nobody else can. That's so good. And I think I'm sitting here thinking about the the handful of listeners who are leaders out there right now who, who, who might be thinking, yeah, Tom, you don't understand. Um, yeah, kindness and humility, that's great. But I've got such a high pressure to perform that I really, I can't be worried about that. I just got to go. And so I think there's a, there's a myth out there that what you're describing is, you know, group hug, kumbaya, nothing ever gets done. Therefore, we never actually hit the performance metrics that we set out to do. When what you're saying is, you know, this is if you're thinking of uh, if you're thinking through the mindset of this is going slow to go faster, it's it's slowing your mind down to do these behaviors that are actually speeding up the ability to accomplish the results. And I know you and I believe that, but I I don't think a lot of people do, or they wouldn't behave in, in the way they do. The leaders out there. So what what would you say to those leaders who just they they're stuck on that treadmill and they think, hey, you know what, kindness, humility, selflessness, that's great, but you know I save that for home. I, I work, I got to grind and we got performance to hit. Yeah. So I was working with a client and they, um, the pandemic hit their business took off because of the nature of their business. And they really, really did well. In fact, they had a huge increase. And then about last July, August, their business sagged and it went down below what it was before the pandemic. There's no reason it should have gone below to what it was before the pandemic. And they said, what happened? And I said, well, you got, you were results focused instead of growth focused. And they said, what do you mean? And and I said, well, when there's a line of people ready to sign agreements, you skip all the foundational stuff and you just write contracts and everybody gives high fives. In the meantime, you have lost out on asking for referrals and building stronger relationships and, and asking what else they might need and how else could you serve them? So you get away from that basic. And so now the market shifts, right? The, it gets tougher. And, and the people who were just coming in in droves, they're not coming in at all because they don't have the ability to come in and you dip below and you've forgotten how to fish. And so now you got to come back in and you do basic training around how to fish, right? You know, how do we build relationships? How do we ask for referrals? How do we, you know, really cement uh, that we care about this client? And so what does it mean when it comes to uh, people who are results-oriented versus growth-oriented? If you're a growth-oriented leadership, then no matter how good it is, you can keep moving the standard higher, you can say, what else can we learn? How else can we serve? How, how are we expanding this out? And you keep hitting the foundation with, with growth and learning and development. And then when it gets tough again, you've got such a bigger base to grow from and your skills are intact that you don't feel the hit like your competition does. And so what does that really mean? It means that if you're a leader and you've got five people on your team, know this, they all want autonomy. 
They all want flexibility. They all want to make choices around how they're going to do the job. And so here's your responsibility to inspire, equip, support, encourage, develop, and train them so that you can give them as much autonomy as possible. Give them what they want. What do we want on our team? We want Navy SEALs working for us, right? We want to say, here's the mission. Go do it. How can I help? Dad said this years ago. He said, if you're irreplaceable, you're unpromotable. So if I'm in a leadership position, my priority should be to make every person on my team better than me. If I get the reputation of raising people up to the next level, then I will get raised up in the process of doing that. If I'm a, what I call a T-Rex leader, you know, this is the negative stereotype, sharp teeth and short arms, sharp teeth because I lead with fear and I bite your head off, short arms because it's all about control. Those are extinct. And that's what's happening with that old style leadership. It's just not working anymore. That's so good. So good. Well, I know we're, uh, we're running out of time already. I can't believe how fast this has gone, but I did want to cover one other virtue and then any other areas you feel like are really relevant inside the book. Well, they're all relevant, but you want to focus in on, and maybe this is where I want some self-coaching on this, on this virtue. It's the idea of mastering self-control. Um, I'm a very, I, I really carry my emotions on my sleeve as a leader. And that's a, it's a good thing because the, uh, the positive, when I'm in a positivity virtue, it's contagious, right? And I really can can bring that energy to a conversation, to my team, and to our clients, and to the stage, and everywhere I go. But if it's not on the right mindset, the self control issue sometimes can be hard to manage. Um, because if it's the wrong emotion, right, the wrong mindset, then if you don't have that self control virtue, you can have a lot of negative impact in that moment. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. You know, from a how how does that look and feel to you? Yeah. So there's two things on the self-control. The first one is this. Um, if you're blindsided, if somebody comes to you and acts completely out of proportion to the situation, they just blow up, right? They're attacking you. They're going off the handle. Uh, they're making accusations. And you're like, where did that come from? All you've got to do is ask yourself this question. Would a secure person say that? And the answer is no. A secure person would not say that. And so that allows your mental and emotional state to say, oh, I'm dealing with an insecure person. Well, that means I don't have to be defensive. That means that this is not about me at all. It's about them. And so that allows you to get your emotion back into control. So that's what happens if you get attacked out of the blue. These are just two things that I try to practice. The second thing is, what if you're going to go into a situation where it is going to be uh, a lot of tension, right? Where there is a likelihood of disagreement, where there might be passions going on both sides. So you've got to do two things. First, what is your why? Why are you there in the first place? And second, you've got to ask yourself this question. Am I here to win the argument or am I here to have the biggest impact? 
And so once you get focused on the impact rather than winning the argument, and it's all centered around your why, it gives you that stability to maintain that self-control. Self-control is one of the fastest ways that people lose their credibility, the lack of self-control. It is a killer. Uh, once you demonstrate that a few times in the wrong place, you lose uh, the trust of your people. There, there are two stories um, that I wanted to share. It was, it, we're recording this uh, right after Master's Week. Um, and so I'm a big golfer and, and I'm a big Tom Watson fan. And he was the honorary starter, I think, for the first time. Yep. Tom won eight majors. Five of them were British Opens. And if you know anything about golf, winning one major is a huge deal. And he won eight. So he's one of the greatest champions of all time. And then if you know anything about the British Open, it's notorious for having the worst weather of any tournament in the world, right? It rains sideways. The temperature might fluctuate 30 or 40 degrees. It sleets. It's just crazy. And so an interviewer said, Tom, how did you win so many British Opens? And he said, bad weather. And they said, what do you mean? And he said, well, he said, when I enter a field and there's 150 players in the field, if I'm, if I'm playing good, I'm only competing against 20 of them because I'm an elite player. He said, but when the weather's bad, I only have to compete against five of them. And so they said, well, what do you do to prepare? And he said, I pray for rain. <laughs> and to me, this is the coach leader mindset when it comes to, uh, to the idea of disruption. We literally should share with our team this mindset that disruption is our friend. Disruption means that because we are a learning and growing organization, we have a strategic, strategic advantage. And most of our competition is going to get paralyzed by the bad weather. Right? right. This is where we get ahead. The second thing, uh, this, this happened a couple of weeks ago. We had a class and we were talking about the cost of turnover when you lose somebody on your team. And Gallup says that that cost is between 50% and 200% of salary. That's a big cost, right? That's a huge thing. And so there was a lady sitting in the front row and she worked for a big uh, pest control company. And I asked her, what's the, you know, what do people make in your industry and what do you think? And so she shared with me that the average person in pest control, they have a hundred employees. They make between 60,000 and 150,000 a year. The longer they've been there, the bigger their territory, the more they get contracts and things like that, the better they do. And I said, well, based on what Gallup said in your own experience, what do you think the replacement cost is per person? She said 60000 And I started talking. And she said, but Tom, that's not the story. She interrupted me. And I go, what's the story? And she goes, in 2021, we started with 100 employees. In 2022, we started with 100 employees. Only 37 of them were the same. Mm. So you do the math, right? Everybody listening, you just multiplied 63 times $60,000. 
that is an enormous cost due to turnover. Even if it was only $10,000 a person, that's $630,000. So why are people leaving? Remember what we talked about? (laughs) Depression, burnout, lack of motivation. These are all things that we can address by focusing in on our people's quality of life, (laughs) their purpose and their goals and growth. That's what a coach leader does. And so does it make sense to focus on this? I mean, literally you save one person and you've gotten a fourfold return on your investment in most cases, just one person. So anyway, those are the stories that are just so current that I wanted to share that just kind of anchor in the mindset we should have and the reality of the cost of doing nothing. Yeah, I love this idea. I mean, leadership, again, it's almost a term that's become cliche because it's been bandied about so long for so many years and decades, yet it, it spans all aspects of our lives from our families to our churches, our communities, and in the workplaces. And the the 10 leadership virtues in this book for Disruptive Times it really does give you the roadmap. And we didn't even really get into the how and some of the specifics today just due to the lack of time. But I, I really want to encourage everybody to go dig into this. I mean, it is just chock full of practical application on how to take these virtues and bring them to life every day in a practical way. And Tom's right. I mean, it's not just about cutting costs because of turnover issues. This is about creating an environment where people want to thrive because of the positive culture that you create as a leader. And then the performance on the other side of this, and we know this, right? We've looked at this, all of us have studied this. The performance of organizations who have those high-performing, high-thriving, purpose-driven cultures is by far 10x their competition. And you've done an amazing job of summarizing that in this and turning a disruptive event or disruptive seasons into a strategic advantage and almost seeking them out because of the culture that you've built to not just survive those disruptive times, but to thrive through them beyond anything that maybe your company's ever seen before. So again, thank you for being on. Point some people in a direction where they can not only get the book, but learn more about the coaching program and obviously your organization in general. You bet. Uh, All about the program and the book, you can go to ZieglerCoachLeadership.com. That's just ZieglerCoachLeadership.com. And uh, if you want to remember a short one, you can just go to Ziegler.com and we can tell you all of our stuff. Uh, But those are the two places to check out. Well, Tom, you are um, a thought leader around the world in this, not just in leadership, but I think as people think about you know, how they manage their lives in general. So thank you for continuing to carry the torch that your dad started and lit. Um, you are a beacon. And I know I look up to you. My team looks up to you. A lot of our clients look up to you. And we just appreciate and are honored to have you on the Driving Change Podcast for episode number two with you. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Jeff. Be blessed. It is just an honor to be invited back. So thank you so much for the time. Anytime. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzoir, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. 
Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.